Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we thank you for these words that we profess each week, um, grounding our feet and our hearts and our minds in you, Lord, and this faith we profess. So we pray, Lord, today that you would grow us, um, that you would open our hearts to your word and to your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to see you all today. Thanks for worshiping with us. I'm Pastor Andrew, if we haven't met. And um, I want to apologize in advance. We spent a good chunk of yesterday out at Center Grove Orchard, and it's been dusty out, if you haven't noticed. And so, you know, everything that I ingested in my nose and lungs is choosing right now to start working its way out. So if I get a little frog in my throat, that is why. Um, but it was a great, beautiful day. I hope you all had a little chance to be outside yesterday as well, and today looks like it's going to be the same. So um, it's a great season to talk about the harvest, right? And it's a great season to talk about um, the harvest that God calls us to enter into as well as his people and as his church. And a good conversation around that, I really want to encourage you to attend this town hall meeting after worship today. Um, it's about God's vision for Emmanuel and Lutheran Church, right? We know some general ways that God calls his people in his church that are very clear in scriptures to act in this world. Uh, but as a local congregation or church and as individuals and as families, we kind of need to work out what that looks like for us individually. And local congregations need to work out what that looks like for them in their community at this time in our, in our world. And so um, it's absolutely relevant to our message today about this bridge that we're going to talk about later that has moved. Well, the bridge hasn't moved, but the world has changed and didn't talk to the bridge first, right? So we'll dig into that here in a minute. I want to do a little bit of a recap on our series. And one of the questions that we've been asking is, what is a mission? What does this word mission mean? And if you remember a few weeks back, I gave a dictionary definition. It's a, the vocation or calling of a religious organization, especially a Christian one, to go out into the world and spread its faith. Now that definition tailors itself towards an organization or institution, but I would argue, and I think Jesus would argue, that we all have a mission too, as individuals, as families, as husband and wife, as uh, spouses, as, as kids. Uh, any of us who have entered the family of God through the blood of Jesus Christ have a mission. We have a, this purpose, this reason to live. And the operative words in this definition, if you remember, calling is one of those. God has called us to a mission. This calling comes from an authority greater than ourselves. God is the one calling. And in the case of a Christian, that is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit placing this call in our lives to go and partake in this mission. And then go was the other operative word, if you remember, uh, meaning that whether it's a physical journey or a spiritual journey or some other sort of journey, the mission is going to take you somewhere. God does not call us to stay where we are. God calls us to grow and learn and thrive and flourish in his kingdom. <clears throat> and then two weeks ago, Allison talked about a couple of things. She talked about God's invitation that is extended to us to join this mission. Um, one of the important things that we need to clarify, particularly in the Lutheran stream of the Christian church, is that God is not standing over you as some overlord with a whip forcing you to take part of this mission. It is an invitation. It is a gift. And like any gift that is extended to us, um, we can use that gift that has been given, or we can choose to do other things and not use that gift. 
So God invites us, he extends this invitation to us to join the same mission that Jesus modeled, the same mission that God has been on since creation and since the fall of humanity. Allison talked about the mission of Jesus, how it is one of redemption, the offer of flourishing life, not just meh life, but abundant life. John 10.10, Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it to the fullest measure. And then Allison asked this question two weeks ago, what would it look like if every day we lived as rescued and redeemed people? And how would that affect others in the world around us? So this conversation about joining Jesus on his mission, it has deep spiritual implications for us. Are we going to allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into abundant life? And this conversation has deep discipleship implications, right? Are we going to live according to Jesus' life and teachings and follow him? Or are we going to rebel? Are we going to rebel? Because that's what choosing not to follow Jesus is. It's a rebellion. It's, it's called sin. It is a rebellion against God. So there's some implications there for us too. And finally, this conversation, it isn't just spiritual and it isn't just about discipleship. Um, it's a very practical conversation too. And I think this is where, um, myself included, where a lot of people want to know practically how do we live this out. And we're moving in that direction with this series. So our tools um, and our methods as churches and as followers of Jesus uh, in our individual lives, too, they often need to be adapted and upgraded. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. That's what we're going to dig into. Uh, sometimes, sometimes we actually do need to change. And so uh, there's this phrase, the river has moved. And that's what the sermon title is today. And, and let me give you a little uh, example to illustrate what that means. By the way, this is the West Fork of the Cedar River. And you see that street sign across the bridge. That is the road that I grew up on. And those big pine trees, I had forts in those pine trees. And as you can see, that's a picture of a flood. That's what rivers do. And as I mentioned before, that house is no more. But, but this is a really good picture that I found that has, has a tie to my heart here today. So back when I was a kid, back in elementary school, I played Cub Scout softball. And it was slow pitch, obviously. Um, and I'm not going to lie, I... I mastered that game. I loved it. Um, I showed up in a pack t-shirt and shorts and tennis shoes, because that's how you show up to Cub Scout softball. We didn't have pads. We didn't have helmets. Uh, we didn't have all of those things. Uh, my last season, I think this was after fifth grade, we had six games, and I hit five home runs and two grand slams. Mm. Pastor Andrew was really good at slow pitch softball. My family was a softball family, so I, I remember going to Frederica and Fayette and all these small towns in northeast Iowa, and my dad would play on these summer league teams, and my mom would play too, and so that's what we spent a lot of time doing in our backyard. So softball, slow pitch, good. It was great. Then the summer, later that summer, that same summer, I signed up to play Lions Club Baseball up in Cedar Falls. So there were a lot of teams. I think there were five or six teams just from my grade alone, and um, I showed up in a t-shirt and tennis shoes and baseball cap, and I learned very quickly that I was not equipped to play fast pitch baseball as a slow pitch softball player, right? Did you know that in baseball, 
that they throw the ball really hard in your direction. Did you know that? <laughs> Coach Hill knows that, right? Yes, big adjustments. And did you know that it's really smart to wear pants in case you need to slide on that lime, whatever it is? Um, and did you know that the bats are a little smaller and lighter? And that's so you can actually swing fast enough to get to that ball coming at you. I had no experience with this. No experience. I was prepared to play slow-pitch softball in a baseball world. And let me tell you, I spent some time on the bench that summer. But isn't that our reality? Isn't that our reality sometimes? That we get really accustomed, we get really good at doing this, and then the circumstances change, or the life season changes, and we find that maybe we're not equipped to do what we were equipped to do before. And I think that that's been my reality at many seasons in life, and I think that's a conversation we need to have as a church in the very rapidly changing culture that we live in today. So there's this picture, you can go to the next picture, of this really well-built bridge, really well-built bridge. And I know Pastor Kurt used this picture a couple of years ago in a sermon, illustrating the same concept that I'm going to illustrate today. Uh, this is, let's see, what is this called? It's the Choloteca Bridge in Honduras, a very well-built bridge. It was built to last, it was sturdy, and it was built over the river. And then a hurricane came and hit Honduras. And that's what it looked like after the hurricane left, right? The bridge didn't move, but the river did, right? The river moved. This is an actual picture of me showing up to baseball that summer. That's what I looked like. <laughs> my, my, bridge, my, my bridge was no longer equipped to serve the mission that baseball offered up to me, right? Or this is an actual picture of a church, a church that was really, really good at doing ministry and really well-tooled and prepared 40 or 50 years ago, but is now no longer in a position to do what it was called to do in the first place because the world has changed so quickly around it. Think about that. And, and this isn't a concept that's unique to ministry. This is a concept that runs in the business world, in the professional world. Any business that can't uh, rebuild or refresh its products or its services um, in the world that we live in today might look a lot like that bridge. The same goes for nonprofits. It goes for um, football teams. How much has the game of football changed over the last 50 years? It goes for software developers, where if you take a week off, you are behind, right? It goes for schools, and yes, it goes for churches too. Like, there's this... Uh, there's this way that we have to be students of the world that we live in just as much as we are students of Jesus Christ. Not to follow the world, but to know how to speak to it and communicate in it. Now, this is not a doom and gloom picture, okay? That's not the point of this. Um, because God has done incredible things in churches and will continue to do incredible things because it is his church. Any church that is God's church, any church that we're not wrestling away from him to do our own thing, is going to do okay. It's going to be fine. So this isn't doom and gloom, but it is an invitation to do something about it. We observe the realities of the world and we adapt because the mission that we have asks us to. It is important. And so we ask ourselves today in this current age, why are there fewer families and churches than ever before? 
It's because culture has changed. The world that those families are living in has changed. Why are there fewer baby boomers in church than ever before? It's because culture has changed. The world has changed. And why are certain types and models of churches in steep decline while others seem to be successful in reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ? The answer to that is because the culture has changed and is changing, and some are doing well at adapting and keeping up with it, um, and others are not. And so there's an invitation here. Now, I want to talk a little bit more about this metaphor, right, with the river. Uh, The river in this metaphor isn't culture. The river is just the reality that we have to bridge to communicate to culture, to speak to culture, to be relevant to culture. And... um, And I think that's important to consider because of how things change in our world, the truth is that culture moves. It it adapts, it transforms. For any of you that have lived 30 or 40 years, you've seen some changes in culture. Uh, For any of you that have lived 80, 90, 100 years, you've seen some incredible changes in culture. I I shared a few weeks ago to, to reflect on my grandma's life, she passed away a year ago, that she saw both self-driving vehicles and horse-drawn carriages as ways for transportation. And just in her lifetime, right? Things change. Now, culture and the changing world doesn't care whether or not a church is up to speed with it. The world doesn't ask us if we're ready for it before it moves on, right? Culture doesn't care. And, And culture, at least here in this area of the world, is rarely shaped by Christians and churches like it used to be. Churches used to be the centerpiece of a community. That's why a community as small as Story City could have five or six churches and be just fine with that, because church was the heartbeat. In many ways, the community was built around the church, as was similar with our church back in Kentucky. So in many ways, because the river moves and people change, And societal values change, and even we change sometimes, but not too much if we're Lutheran, right? In many ways, we find ourselves in this scenario, not just because of the changing culture, but because of this. Because Christians and churches have voluntarily given up their influence and culture by choosing to remain silent on matters that concern God and the Scripture. Because Christians, by and large, in this culture, have sat on the sideline rather than engage in the mission that God has called them to. So the river might have moved, but the mission that God has called us to is not. And I want to talk about this other river, this other river that it's really good to live by. It's one that's always relevant. It's one that's always true and right. And it's the river that guides us morally and ethically and spiritually and relationally and in any other area of our lives. Uh, This is the river of God that we read about in Psalm 46 uh, that you heard Hunter read up here earlier. So I want to invite you to pull out your pew Bibles, uh, the blue Bibles in front of you, and it's going to be page 855 in the pew Bible. And we're going to read this psalm again because we need to be putting our roots deep into a place that has life for us. This is the river we want to spend our time on. Page 855, Psalm 46, 1 through 7. And follow along as I read. 
says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. We'll stop there. So though the earth gives way and though the mountains be moved into the sea, though the realities and the changing world seem unrecognizable to us at times, there is a river whose streams make glad God's people and God's city. A river in which God is in the midst of. A river of life which his presence flows in and through. And friends, this is our river, okay? This is the one we want to live next to. We don't need to live on the west fork of the Cedar River and get flooded out. We need to live on the river of God in every aspect of our lives. The river of God sets our way. It gives us with everything that we need. God promises to nourish us and equip us and provide for us. The river sets our way, not the culture, not the changing world that we live in, but God. The river of God will also often lead us to change and adapt our tools and our methodology as Christians. But it's never going to forsake God's law. It's never going to forsake God's forgiveness. And it's never going to forsake God's eternal life for all who believe. The river will lead us to change in this way or that way, but God will not ask anything of us that is inconsistent with his heart, with his son, Jesus, as revealed to us in his word and the scriptures. The river of God looks, you can go to the next slide, go back to that bridge. The river of God looks at that situation and says, we have some work to do if we're going to reach those people that live on the other side. We have work to do if we're going to reach the world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Because the abundant life of God and God's truth and God's direction in our lives, the power of the gospel, those things are far more powerful and far more important than any tool or preference that we might attach ourselves to in our lives. The mission is far more important than the method provided that the method stays true to the God who loves us and gave us the mission. So it's worth rebuilding that bridge. If there are people over there, it's worth rebuilding it. It's worth moving the bridge if you can move it. Sometimes that's necessary. And it's worth it, and the people on this planet are worth it to Jesus. And Jesus desires that all would come to know him and the saving grace of our God. And that's why it's worth it. So the question is this, what does Jesus value? How do we know what Jesus values? Because I think if we come to that understanding, 
in a way that is consistent with Jesus' heart, it will change how we view certain things in the world. It will change our passion for those who are not living in a church community, for those who haven't heard the name of Jesus. It will change us if we begin to value what Jesus values. So what does Jesus value? Well, he tells this parable that we heard, one that you've probably heard, thought on many times before. I know I've preached on it here before, but it's so relevant to this conversation today. Luke 10, 29 through 37, this, this teacher of the law, one of these experts in Jesus' culture on religion, he knows what the scripture says about eternal life, that one must love the Lord and their neighbor. And Jesus says, yes, you got it. You answered correctly. And he tells them to live accordingly, but the guy doesn't stop. The teacher doesn't stop. He, he wanted to push some buttons maybe or justify himself. And he asks Jesus to define who is my neighbor. In other words, who don't I have to spend my time on? Who don't I have to love? I can't think of any other reason why you ask that question unless you're trying to get out of something. So Jesus responds with this parable. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So this priest was a religious man. He had authority. He had position in their religious system. And he thought that his mission from God excluded him from helping this beaten and robbed man. He thought he had more important things to do. So likewise, a Levite, verse 32, when he came to this place, saw him and passed by on the other side. Now the Levites, this is another from the tribe of Israel. The Levites were entrusted with caring for the house of God and the temple. And he was one also who thought his mission from God excluded him from helping a beaten and a robbed man. But then comes this Samaritan in verse 33. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. His heart was moved. And this Samaritan, this person who the Jewish people of that time viewed as less than, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans shared this mutual loathing for each other, but Jesus' parable tells this story this way for, on a, for a reason, on purpose, because it hits them right in their prejudice. It hits them right in the place where they would say, that's not my neighbor. And so the Samaritan, verse 34, went up to him, bound his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this Samaritan, who didn't live up to the standards of the Levite, who wasn't viewed as desirable or worth as much as the average Jew, the Samaritan came through, took time, sacrificed his own resources, and took care of the person in need. Verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the teacher of law said this, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. What is it that Jesus values? 
Jesus here, as he often does, flips the question, doesn't he? The question shouldn't be, who is my neighbor? Because it's not about being in or out or dividing other people into groups. The question Jesus turns to is, are you being a neighbor? Are you being a neighbor? Are you showing mercy? And often we might be tempted to do the same thing in our lives, where we look at this mission that Jesus calls his people to, and sometimes we categorically disclude ourselves from part of it. From this project, or this service, or this need, or that need, we count ourselves out without ever really taking it to the Lord in prayer and considering that maybe God could equip us to serve. And then we often also, as humanity, even in the church, we often make our judgment on who is worthy to be served by us. And we functionally live like, who is my neighbor, rather than, are we being a neighbor? So rather than being like Jesus, rather than showing mercy, rather than being a neighbor, sometimes we miss the mark on this. And I think Jesus' heart for us is that we wouldn't. So here's the charge today as we reflect on on culture, as we reflect on that bridge, as we reflect on the river of life where we want to grow deep roots. If we personally or as a church are willing to adapt and retool ourselves to better show and communicate God's love to our culture and our community and our neighbors, then we have a bright future because we are going to be living according to God's heart, the heart of Jesus. And we will learn and we will grow to see the people in this world as people that Jesus loves and to be willing to extend the same mercy and compassion that this Samaritan showed to the man beaten along the side of the road. Jesus doesn't want us to be stuck, okay? He doesn't want us to be stuck. He doesn't want us to be hanging on to things that are not him or worshiping things that are not him. He wants us to experience abundant life and to be vessels of that abundant life so that others may also be brought to Jesus to experience abundant life. God's plan for this mission is you and it is me and it is us. That's God's methodology to reach a world. And then the other charge, the other challenge this morning is this. Joining Jesus on his mission means that we are the good neighbor. We don't need to ask who our neighbor is. We just need to be the good neighbor that Jesus is, that he demonstrates and models and that the early church took up the mantle of and modeled. That we extend God's mercy and compassion It means that we are willing to ask Jesus where he is working and that we are willing to join in just like the Samaritan did in Jesus' parable. So how are we going to make sure our own bridge is in the right place? How are we going to make sure our congregation's bridge is in the right place? And how are we going to join in Jesus' abundant life and work? And I'm going to leave you with that question this morning, uh, because in the next few weeks we're going to go more into the practical side of things. But I want you to stew on that in the coming weeks. Think about these things. Think about those images. Ask the Lord, where, where are you at? Where are we at? And how can we join Jesus in the mission that he has for us, these people today, in this community, in this world? Let's pray. 
Lord, we, um, we praise you and we thank you for the life-giving words of scripture that we read this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you've reminded us of this river of life, this place, um, this place, God, that is holy, this place that offers up life in a way that cannot be fabricated or duped or replicated anywhere else in this world. Lord, we thank you for the life-giving waters of that river and how you promise to provide for us and nourish us and equip us for this mission that you call us to. And so, Lord, we ask you this morning um, that we would know ourselves better, that we would know, Lord, where we are working with you on these things and where we might be working against you and that we would have the humility to ask for forgiveness that we would have the humility, Lord, to submit to your ways. And that when we say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, we don't just mean the Savior part. Lord, help us to mean the Lord part. That we are willing to joyfully submit to your authority in our lives and the authority of your word. Lord, would you give us a vision for how you would like to use us more for your kingdom's purposes? as people who extend grace and compassion, love and mercy to the world around us. Lord, may we, um, may we do well in taking up this mission and joining Jesus where he's already working. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.